Father, this morning, we just want to open our hands where we're sitting and, um, and just acknowledge kind of uh, the things we're feeling. And maybe it's a sense of loss. Maybe there's a sense of anxiety or pain or fear. Maybe there's a deep sense of expectation and joy and anticipation. God, we just recognize that our lives are full. And because of how full they are and how busy they are and somewhat how chaotic they are and where we are with our emotions, our feelings, our, our responses, there's not a lot of time for us to just be. So this morning, I just want to take a risk and just spend some time in silence. We lift up Wayne. We pray that you would just comfort him and Evelyn, um, give him strength to fight these infections. Let him feel your love and the love of family. And we pray for healing. We pray for his recovery. God, we lift up Jaden and Trent in their loss. Be close to them and their families as they wrestle with the loss of dear grand grandfathers. And God, for all the traveling happening this week, the road trips, the flights. God, we pray for our conversations around our tables this Thursday. May they be life-giving, God-honoring, loving. God, will you show us how to listen first? And God, we are tremendously thankful and grateful for a healthy baby little Felix. God, be with us this morning as we wrestle with what you have for your church, what our mission is, what our purpose is, where our focus should be. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Ah, uh, Revelation. I've been giving you guys some resources, some books. The reality is, is we're not covering everything here. 
Um, it's pretty humbling to try to figure out how to teach through this and talk about certain things, and we're kind of hitting some major themes, and I know a lot of you have questions about, like, this word and that thing, and for those of you like me and grew up with um, some of the the things I was a part of uh, in Christian churches or in, like, a little Christian school I went to, um, and there were certain ways of, of thinking about the end times, Revelation just has a lot of baggage with me. Um, I was talking to someone this morning, I won't name names, that read all of the Left Behind books and mentioned that they were terrified. <laughs> it was just like a terrifying experience, like thinking about the rapture, which we're going to talk about today, and, and just all these big images and scary things. One of, the, one of the resources I haven't shared with you yet that might be interesting for you is Eugene Peterson, who I love. He's no longer with us, but he wrote a book called Reversed Thunder, The Revelation of John and, praying and the Praying Imagination. And I love this because Eugene um, doesn't get into all the calendarizing and all those things, but he, he just takes major themes and it was really refreshing to me to read this um, before this whole series began because um, he, he makes this statement that in the introduction that he doesn't read Revelation to learn more, get more information about life, um, about Jesus. Um, he's like, I've read all of that in the Law and the Prophets. He's like, so I'm not going to Revelation to learn more about Jesus. He's like, I'm going to Revelation, and he says to, to uh, uh, there's, he's like, there's just nothing more to say on all that stuff, but there is a new way to say it, is what he says. And he's like, I read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. And I thought that was really, really cool. There's something about our imagination, right? Like, a lot of times we just want to know things. We want to know the meaning of this and that, and, and it's really important for us, especially in the West. We have a very neck-up faith, and to learn more and to know more, and, 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 and Eugene's like, no, that's not what this is, what I'm going after. And he kind of, <laughs> I love this, he, he writes about how, it, it, when, he's like, when I'm bored, like with his faith, it's no fault of creation, meaning it's no fault of how beautiful this world is that God has created, and it's no fault of the covenant that God has made with us. He says this, familiarity dulls my perceptions. Selfishness restricts my range. Anxiety robs me of appetite. Envy distracts me from what is good and blessed right before me. And I think that's just so true for us, right? Like there's something that we, our imaginations are really important in all of this because um, who God is and what God is up to um, is all about our participation. And so there's no way to catch you up to this point on the revelation thing. We're, this is week 10, I think, and um, 
We're going to just jump in with some of this because I think that um, there's a lot for us as a church. And I, thought, I felt it was fitting on our 12th birthday as a church to, to kind of sink our teeth into what it looks like to be, what does it look like to be the church. And, and since there's no way to catch you up, I just want you to know the goal of all of this was just to reclaim this book a little bit out of like this category of fear and speculation and back into what it was meant to be about perseverance and joy and hope. And that's what we want. That's kind of really the goal. Last week, Gabe Nip was here and he spoke about Babylon. And if you missed that, I would really encourage you to go back. He's, we have a whole group of teachers and Gabe was the bravest one. He's like, yeah, I guess I'll do a revelation talk. And um, and it was just, it was so good to, to sit where you guys are and to hear from him, and, and if you missed that, I, I would encourage you to check that out. Um, remember, this is just a reminder that, that this book was written for house churches in Asia Minor. And some of you are like, but it was for us too. I'm like, yeah, of course. But it was for them before us. And so for us to really know what it means and what, what kind of meaning it has for us, we have to understand what it meant for them. And so the question I want to ask us is, in this whole book of Revelation, like where is the church? What is the role of a collection of followers of Jesus? Like where do we find ourselves? Now, most of my life, I was taught this book through a lens of something called premillennial dispensationalism. And you can bring that up at Thanksgiving if you'd like. <laughs> Just get everybody bored. But um, inherent in this understanding of the reading of Revelation, somewhere around chapter 4, there's this great huge throne scene Somewhere around chapter 4, the, the thinkers behind this reading of Revelation believe that the church is no longer, people who follow Jesus are no longer on the scene. That they've been rescued out of the world. And um, all the really scary stuff that happens, happens with followers of Jesus being raptured away. And they don't have to deal with all the hard things. Now that view of Revelation is only 150 years old. And it's only been taught in America. And we can get into all of that. And there's a lot of church history there. And I'm not going to go into all that. But with this reading, certain types, it's like a, if you read it with a linear timeline and structure... There are certain things that end up getting overweighted. And when certain things get overweighted, um, the emphasis kind of tilts. Last week, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the Antichrist and how the word Antichrist is actually not even in the book of Revelation. It comes up in 1 John and there's actually many Antichrists and there's just a whole bunch of things going on there. For us, we're going to talk about today is the rapture, and the reason why we're doing this is because it has implications for us, tremendous implications for us as a church. So I want to introduce the concept of the rapture, and here's a 
little definition that might ring a bell. Um, To carry off, the faithful remnant of true Christians are taken bodily into the sky with the returning Jesus to escape the force of God's wrath poured out on unbelievers down on earth. Now, this is a definition that I kind of grew up with. Um, And you guys need, real quick, this isn't in my notes, I just want to say something. Like, when I say I grew up with this, I'm not faulting my parents who are sitting right over here. Um, I just want you to, like, it's good to remind you that um, it's not like we had, like, little rapture chats. Um, (laughs) It's like, sometimes I feel bad, but, you know. And this is normally, okay, so this is normally thought to happen um, if you're reading Revelation with, like, a timeline sequence it happens before the tribulation, and the, there's this seven-year reign of the Antichrist, which isn't mentioned in there. I'm sorry. And, um, and then there's this apparent peace, and then everything turns bad. And, and there's all si- sorts of ideas about the rapture and when it will take place and all those kinds of things. And there's, there's, there's not so many bumper stickers anymore, but there used to be a lot of bumper stickers about the rapture. But we won't get into those. But there are some people that believe that rapture will take place before the tribulation, and they are called, they call themselves pre-trib. And there's some people that believe that the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation, and, and they call themselves mid-trib, and then there's post-trib, and there's a lot of categories, and this is what we do as Christians, right? Like, what are you? Um, and and the, the, I kind of shared that with you just because, like, I, that's not what our goal is in this conversation, is to figure out where we're at. Um, we're going to talk about other things next week, two weeks from now, just about the millennium and different things that are happening in the book. And Now, I, like I said, I was raised in Bible schools and in church Bible studies and things that had this kind of particular view. And... Um, and this is why I've been really, really enjoying Eugene Peterson's view, because he takes the approach out of calendarizing and, and thinking and scheming and, and just puts it more on who Jesus is. Um, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors ever, wrote that, um, he said this, though John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators which I thought was fantastic. There's so much rich imagery in this, and it's so hard for us to understand and unpack it all. So today, here's what I w- I merely want to suggest something to us. And like I've said before, you can agree to disagree with me and all that kind of stuff, and you are free to believe um, is still holding on to some of those things, and that's totally fine. But I merely want to suggest that for some of us, these terms don't mean what we think they mean. And even if they do, they're overweighted. And the emphasis kind of betrays a deeper motive. And that motive is to find out how we can be safe and secure, okay, and not go through really hard things. And this is a very Western thing. Now, 13 years ago, before we planted this church, Angela and I were uh, 
and the family went to a, a church. I won't say the name of the church, but they were in a series on Revelation, and the guy basically said uh, this. It was like a big salvation call. He says, you don't want to be here when it all goes bad. And so you need to accept Jesus right now. So let's talk about the rapture. Deal? Two places that this comes from in the New Testament, this idea of rapture comes from. The first one is 1 Thessalonians 4. And the context of this letter to the Thessalonians is this little church, and this is one of the first letters ever written in the, Old, in the New Testament. Totally, Atlas, I know. <laughs> this is one of the first letters ever written in the New Testament, and people in their church were beginning to die. Like people in their little house church that they loved and that followed Jesus and had these major life transformations were beginning to die. And there was questions people were having, like what happens next? What is going on? Where do they go? Um, are they going to ever see Jesus in his second coming and things like that? And so there was just a lot of questions. And, um, and then what happens when Jesus comes back? What happens when Jesus comes back is there to the people who are dead? And so Paul writes a very just pastoral letter to this little house church that began to be circulated through all of them. And he says this in verse 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And this idea Paul is getting across is this just like kind of like a, 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 just a waiting, a temporary time for them. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind have no hope. He said, you actually have hope. And here's why. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's basically saying those who have died will see Jesus first. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Basically, he's saying, your loved ones who have already died will actually be honored dignitaries and see Jesus first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, really quick. Does it tell us, does Paul tell them where they will be forever? We throw that back up, that last part, yeah. Um, does it say where they will be with the Lord forever? No, right? And so there's just like this, where, where is this happening? Where do we go? So when I, when, I, when I was, I think back to my childhood youth days, I was taught to read this as Jesus comes, okay? We meet him in the air, and then we go to heaven. 
Anybody with me on that one? Did, was that kind of your schema of things <laughs> a little bit? It's okay. You can nods are good. Um, what if we've been given the wrong direction? Like, what if we've just assumed that it, we were going to heaven, but actually we were given the wrong direction? And I'm not meaning hell. I'm just saying, like, what if, what if there's something else going on here? Where does the end of Revelation say we will be? I know we haven't gotten there yet, but <laughs> on earth, right? So it's like this interesting, like, where are we going with this? So what I want to do is I want to suggest that there are three really critical Greek words in this passage that I think have been misunderstood a bit. And I'm not coming up with this out of thin air. Um, I want to do a little, I want to show you my work. And basically what I want to do is show you other people's work. Okay, so the coming says it's like when uh, there's the, the verse, it comes out of verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down. And so this is where we get the word the coming, uh, perusian, and then we will be caught up together. Then there's that word. And then, then to meet, right? And these are three really important parts of this conversation. Paul is, is using some really powerful uh, historical language to talk about what this looks like. Now, we're going to jump, jump into this a little bit because I, I really want you to understand kind of the, how the implications for how we see the direction. The direction matters, okay? So, the coming has two meetings in Greek. The first one is arrival, okay? But the second one is actually the one that's used here, and this second meaning is the greeting of foreign dignitaries and welcoming them into the city. So in Paul's day, whenever a, for, a formal a dignitary would come to a city, the bigger named they were, the more the greeting. Okay? And so, for instance, Jerusalem, Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great is coming through the, that part of the world, and he's coming to Jerusalem, and the high priest at the time was a guy named Jadis, and Jadis refused to welcome Alexander the Great to Jerusalem. Jadis had kind of this um, deal with another ruler at the time named Darius, um, and so he felt like if he welcomed Alexander the Great to the city, there would be trouble, right? So the second time Alexander Great comes to the city, between those two comings, uh, Jadis has a dream, and in his dream, uh, Josephus records his dream, and his dream is about how the, he's changed his mind. He's like, we need to welcome this guy because um, there's new political realities afoot in the world, and we need to welcome Alexander the Great, kind of a big deal, to Jerusalem. And so he tells the whole city to dress in white, and they created a procession from the road like 20 miles out of Jerusalem into the city for Alexander the Great. And it was called the coming of Alexander the Great the Perusian of Alexander the Great. 
Now, this is the language, this is the, the metaphor, this is the image that Paul's trying to, to create in the people's minds. But instead of outside the gate, like just on the road, like earthly kingdom, earthly ruler stuff, Paul ratchets up the metaphor and says, Jesus is not an earthly ruler, a human ruler. He is a spiritual, bigger God of God's ruler, King of Kings ruler. And we will go out to meet him in the air. So that's some of the language behind it. There's this word caught up together. This doesn't mean that we will, be, we will fly away like we're caught up together, right? Flying away. It actually means to be claimed or seized, basically, ownership. So we are, in, in a sense, claimed and owned by Jesus. And then the last one, to meet, just has to do with that whole delegation model, right? And so here's a quote from a famous scholar. He's probably not famous to you, and that's okay. Gene Green. This was almost a technical term that described the custom of sending a delegation outside of the city to receive a dignitary who was on their way to town. So here's the picture. Paul is trying to create this mental image that we are claimed by Jesus, that he is coming back, that we are going to invite him back into our world. And part of what that looks like is, is us showing him around and saying, look what we've done with the place. Look what we've prepared for you. Look what we've done in anticipation of you coming back. And the idea is to escort him back in. And we read, um, when we read that Revel in Revelation that he's, we're going to be on earth, and, and there's the picture of new creation um, and heaven and earth coming together and no more evil and no more suffering and all that kind of stuff. That is the picture of new creation, that we will be here, not floating on clouds. So the idea is that we escort him here and that's how it ends. So to read about going somewhere else, going to heaven, is actually a, a misreading, in my opinion. Matthew 24, Jesus is looking at the temple with his disciples. And Jesus, it says in verse uh, 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples, came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now, the temple's being built. It's an incredible feet. It is incredible. Like if you get into all the archaeology of the temple in Jerusalem and these massive stones and they were, they were, they shone in the sun. They were just, it was just an incredible, incredible building. And his disciples were like, check that out. Let, look at the view of the temple from here. And Jesus kind of Bums them out a little bit. <laughs> he says, do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, <laughs> I don't know if we catch the full weight of that, but the center of their world is the temple. And it's about completed. And it is incredible. And he's saying the stones that we're talking, like some of these stones were just like the size of a school bus. 
are going to be, not one stone is going to be on top of another? Like, if, even if I told you that with this building right now, like, guys, there's going to be, like, not one of these cinder blocks is going to be connected to another one. Be like, that's kind of a big incident. And this is the place, the temple wasn't just important for them because it was looking cool. It was where they felt like heaven and earth met. And Jesus said, this is going to change a lot. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end, the end of the age? And so he's having this discussion. He's using very end-of-the-world language. Um, and he's talking about this destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem. And he says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And then Jesus has given them several parallels to um, what it will look like. And there's, there are parallels between the story of Noah and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we're going to jump to verse 38. It says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. So the, the point he's trying to get across is, did the people during Noah's age um, think that there was something that, that was going to be happening that was really bad? No. They were just going along with life. Verse 39, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. I'm going to ask you something really quick. Is being taken away in this conversation good or bad? That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. So if it was bad then, is it bad here to be taken? Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. The taken one, good or bad? Bad. Luke recalls this whole conversation uh, a little bit differently with some more emphasis. And in verse 34 of 17, he says this, I tell you on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And then he adds this. Where, Lord, they asked he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Does that sound like heaven <laughs> to you? <laughs> no, it's, it's this image of, it's just not good. Now, I, the, the thing is, is we've taken, we, um, scholars have taken this passage and the Thessalonians passage and kind of married them together with some reading of Revelation that creates this theology of escape. And what's linked to this version of thinking is this idea that everything is just going to get worse and worse and worse, but if you accept Jesus, you will get out of here and you will miss all the really bad stuff. And this perception turns into this reading about the message of life and death and resurrection of Jesus is primarily a ticket out of suffering. Not all the time, but sometimes it's read as a ticket out of suffering and hardship. 
But if the direction's supposed to be that we invite, that we welcome Jesus back to this earth and we're showing him around and saying, look what we've done with the place. Look how we've cared for your creation. Look how we've cared for people on earth and helped the, the systems of, of oppression and, and injustice change. Look how we've um, helped people to see you and bear allegiance to you. Look what we've done with the place. I just think that's a whole different way to look at it. Now, some of you get really worried about the word injustice because you think I'm going to bring up reparations and racism and all those things, and you're nervous about those things, and, um, and I think you should be nervous about those things because those are real things. But if we have a conversation about injustice, I thought I'd bring up this conversation about things that are not right in this world by just sharing with you what I've shared with you before about a little thing that's under our nose here in Arvada, and it's, and it's, about, it's about youth sports. I'm just going to throw this out to you. One of the things we've learned about injustice in our city is through our relationship with Arvada High School. And the former athletic director of Arvada High School shared with me, he's like, do you know how unjust sports is in Arvada? I'm like, what? what? He's like, yeah. He's like, he showed me a map. He's like, here's all the rec centers in Arvada. Here's all the fields in Arvada. And then he showed me the economic difference between this side of Wadsworth and that side of Wadsworth. And then he shared with me how much it costs for kids to be in sports. And then he shared with me how the percentage of kids who participate in youth sports go on to have this kind of a success in life. And he's like, so when you don't participate in any youth sports or even that, any activity after school, music, drama, whatever, you actually have a lower chance of success in our culture than if you did. And then he's like, this is how much it costs. And if most of the sports are on the west side of Arvada, think about being a single mom on the east side of Arvada with one income and how hard it is, especially with <laughs> construction, to get to the west side of Arvada. And it just like floored me. And some of you are like, Ryan, why are you talking about this in a sermon? I'm telling you that there are things right under our nose that are broken. And when Jesus returns, um, I don't think he wants to find us holed up just waiting for the rapture. I think he actually wants us to participate in, in changing things on this planet. And not just in introducing people to who he is, but also in all the other things. Now, just want to let you know that our relationship with Arvada High School is still in really, really good, and we are actually doing that Christmas thing that we did last year. Some of you were here last year, and we supported uh, 10 families with gifts, and uh, we, actually, last year we did seven. This year we're doing 10. Mandy's like, don't say yes to 10, and I'm like, we can do it. <laughs> you think we can do it, don't you, Mandy? Two thumbs up. <laughs> That's all coming. We're going to roll that out. We're going to do that together. But I just want to suggest that the picture that John is painting in Revelation, 
okay, is much more glorious than you and I um, pulling a ripcord and getting out of here. I think there's something so much bigger happening. And when we get our heads around the idea that the role of the church is actually to endure suffering instead of to escape suffering, I think we have a, a different approach to how we live. And, and here's the, just the big, um, the big thing I want to continue. You may disagree with that, and that's okay. Um, we can disagree and, and still like, love each other and work through this together, but I just want to suggest that I think that it helps us to have a different outlook. Now, we're going to go to Revelation 11 as we finish up. So you're like, well, you haven't even talked about Revelation yet. Um, by the way, in the resources, like on our um, program for the day, which you get with uh, scanning the QR code, um, I've got some resources on there. I've got some questions for you to ask yourself and each other if you participate in some small groups around here. But I also have a little link to a Bible project video that does a little recap of Revelation 1 through 11 that I think is really, really helpful for us up to this point. Okay? So remember, we saw a heavenly throne image in chapter 4. Then we saw three cycles of seven start. There was bowls and trumpets and scrolls and things and, and just some really heavy language around plagues and, and all these different things that were going to happen. And we kind of helped um, kind of bridge that with this day of the Lord kind of concept. I told you I wasn't going to give a recap, but that's a little bit of one. Um, three cycles of judgment all this day of the Lord language. Gabe talked about Babylon and how we're called to resist the pull of Babylon. And if we look all the way back into that church of Laodicea, how they weren't resisting the pull of Babylon, and they were just like Babylon. And, and, and the writer talks about what it looks like to be victorious and all that kind of stuff. So the big question today is in between these cycles are these two interludes, okay? You got all these plagues and bowls and scrolls and trumpets. There's two interludes. And in these two interludes, John tells, that, that tells us that nobody is coming to repentance, meaning there's these judgments and these judgments and these plagues and all this kind of stuff, but that nobody's changing their mind. No one's changing their life. So the big question we have is, how will people actually change? How will people turn their allegiance to the slain lamb instead of the dragon and the beasts? Verse 1 of chapter 11, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. So remember the 42 months thing is three and a half years. It's just a, uh, an idea of temporary. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. What are lampstands? Yeah, so you, some, some of you have been a part of this before. The seven churches in the beginning of Revelation, each were sim signified with a, a lampstand. So these are churches. 
This is John's way of communicating that the church is still here. And the reason why there's two is because this is a very Deuteronomy Old Testament way of saying two witnesses. You needed two witnesses to, to bring testimony. And so John is using this idea of the lampstand as the churches and two churches. They're not two churches they're in a sense that's just bearing witness to the world about who God is. So I personally believe these are not two individuals, but these are two families of followers of Jesus. These are two churches. These are churches corporately witnessing to people who don't know Jesus. Remember who they're written, this is written to. There's written to churches. And they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Um, this is, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, but it's obviously hyperbole. This is like talking about how these two witnesses function the witness of Jesus functions. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens. Who shut up the heavens in the Old Testament? Anybody remember the prophet that shut the heavens up? And Elijah, yeah. So this is kind of a reference to this prophetic Elijah type existence, really. So that, I will not, so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who struck the, the earth with plague? Yeah, Moses. So thanks for answering before I finish, you know. <laughs> just kidding, Paige. You're a teacher. You know how this works. Um, so you got this kind of this idea of Elijah and Moses um, and it sounds like these are two corporate entities. These are, this is a corporate entity as a church that will live out their communal life together in the spirit of Moses and Elijah. They're going to have this like really rich, um, beautiful, in a sense, uh, message to the world. And, and, and two things that are really important, and I read this one scholar that talked about how Moses was the law and Elijah was a prophet. And, and there was these things happening at the same time. And he says, the law tells us how God is involved in our lives. And prophecy tells us how we are involved in his. And that you need both of those things. And it's just really this beautiful picture. And Eugene Peterson talks a lot about it in his book here. And he says, now we have Fin now, now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. What is a beast? Is it a person? Is it an actual beast? What is it? It's a nation, right? So there's this nation, there's this corporate nation, and there's this corporate witness, and there's this overpowering of the corporate witness by this nation, and their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. It's like Christmas, right? Because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. So, I mean, think about 
how Elijah was accepted. Think about how Moses, you know, just think about this vitriol, like, oh, we don't have to deal with these guys anymore. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. They were resurrected. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud where their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified. And listen to this line, gave glory to the God of heaven. This is, this is like a really intense passage. Some of you are like, why did I come to this church today? There's only one time where there's repentance in the book of Revelation, and this is it. And this is the idea where judgment fails, plagues and all that fails, and the faithful witness of the church is what does it. And the church does not get out of suffering, but endures it, and the faithful witness here is what draws people to allegiance of the Lamb. And we can talk about all the details of this passage, and some of you are like, I totally disagree with you, I read it differently, and that's fine. But we can't simply say that our role as the church is to give people fire insurance because the ship is sinking. It can't be our only role. And, and, I, and I argue that because if it's, if it's our job just to hang tight and then get out of here, we'll live a certain way. But if our job, if our assignment is to faithfully endure even when we are mocked and ridiculed and misunderstood, then it changes how you live. How does the church provide a faithful witness in this book? Well, let me ask you this. How does Jesus conquer? Dying. Slain lamb, right? We, we get this image of this slain lamb and the blood on his, on his clothing before the battle. The blood is his own, and, and we're, if we're slain lamb people, then that's exactly how we overcome. He sacrificed himself to break the power of sin in our world, and how we overcome is the same way. He, there's this language in here, they did, not live the, they did not love their lives so much. There's this idea of the martyrs, they did not love their lives so much. They weren't protecting anything about themselves. And I just have to ask the question, no matter how bad it gets, are we ever going to be the kind of people that just go, we refuse to fight or coerce or manipulate? Jesus' last words, some of his last words were, in this world you will have trouble, right? But I'm going to leave you my peace. John 17, this prayer he has for believers, not only his own right then, but the ones that would come in the future. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So there's this idea that there's, there's going to be here, that we're a part of this, that we're not escaping anything, that we patiently and faithfully bear witness and endure suffering. And sometimes I feel like the goal sometimes of the American church just from my experience, you might disagree with this, is to help us avoid suffering. Like, how do we just, how do we get out of some suffering? How do we push that off to the side? And I think there's this, a theology of suffering resistance that we're taught sometimes in American churches. And I just, I mean, tell that to a Palestinian, Palestinian Christian right now. 
I mean, wherever you're at and you're probably frustrated with Israel and their response, some of you are really upset with uh, Palestine and, and you, you're trying to sort through all this history and there's just a lot and it's complex. Let me just, let me just push that all aside and I just want to ask you to think about what it would be like right now for a Palestinian Christian. And you're patiently enduring and you're trying to live like a slain lamb. So this is why this is a hard sell. This isn't like an easy sell. This isn't like, let's, let's create more followers of Jesus who are prepared for that who are prepared to suffer, who are prepared to um, lay down their life. Um, what's the pitch? And here's the deal. I'm going to go off a little bit right now because, like, church growth Ryan is in me still. And, and the reason, <laughs> you're like, what are you talking about? Like, all the things that I've been trained on in conferences and in church planting and all of that is church, I call it church growth Ryan. And church growth Ryan is like, how do we create how do we tell the message of Jesus in such a way that people, they, they just want to come. They just want to come be a part of the church because it's, it's so great. And, and, and I, was, I was taught things like, you know, how Jesus makes you a better husband or a parent or whatever and, 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 and helps you certainly live. I mean, certainly Jesus does that. Okay. <laughs> but it's by stripping us of us and replacing it with him. It's this dying to self. It's this cross-carrying kind of existence. And, 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 and versus, like, come to our church, we're having a raffle, right? And so uh, the reward for following Jesus is actually Jesus. Not the benefit to my life in a kind of an American way. Ah. Uh. Discipleship, like I said before, is the joyful relearning of what it means to be human. Like actually God's intent for us as human beings. And so it's going to feel weird. Remember when Jesus shot up, he, he got in front of crowds and he, whenever he had a lot of crowds, he gave them hard teachings. And I'm just clarifying the things that Jesus told us to say yes to. To commit to being around people who are hard to be around. Or committing to be around people who don't make us look religious. Or committing to opening our table. Or committing to practice prayer and silence and solitude. Or generosity. Or speaking first and listening. Sorry. Speaking last and listening first. Or making space for people on the margins. Or pushing in when everybody else scatters. See, new creation is coming, but it's already here, and it's in you. And that's what Corinthians tells us, that you are new creation. And you bear witness to the, this Jesus, this slain lamb. And so that is... Where we're landing today. It, the question for us is Am I willing to lose privilege in the world in order to advance the ways of Jesus? And I'm not saying that in a cultural war way. I'm saying that in a sacrificial, dying to self way. If we're willing to live with nothing to protect in the world, how dangerous would that be? 
And so this morning, we're going to come to the table. And we are going to participate in the table. This is what communion is. We are participating in the, the act of, of Jesus' death and, and sacrifice. And, 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 and yes, in this moment, we are received. Like, there's something beautiful happens in the moment of communion. And, and I want to encourage you to think about this, not just in terms of remembering. Many of you come from traditions of communion taking that are about remembering. And I believe there's something more that happens here than just remembering. I believe God meets us. That he wants us to know what it looks like to be fully human. And that's why he broke the power of sin and death for us to walk into it. To taste it. To experience his beautiful love, forgiveness, and grace. And to participate in that beautiful love, forgiveness, and grace. Not to hold up and wait. So we come to the table as participants in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray. God, this morning, this allegiance you call us to isn't just meant for us to experience all those beautiful things of forgiveness and transformation and healing and all those things are beautiful and wonderful and we are grateful. But when you call us to become like you and do what you did, that's going to be a constant wrestle for us. It it finds its way into how we see our days and our finances and our homes, where we position ourselves in this world, how we treat people, how we see our role as suffering and in hardship, how we choose to show up when we feel like fighting. and manipulating, and coercing. God, you called us to be your church, to bear witness. And so we come to the table and you've broken the bread and you've passed it to your disciples and you said, this is my body broken for you. When you pass the cup of the Passover, of the Passover lamb, and you said, this is my blood spilled for you. So we come to the table in joy, in gratitude, in eager expectation, with a sense of sober resolve to partner with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.